Thanks for downloading this message from Devoted 2015, a Christ Central festival for all the family. Christ Central is part of New Frontiers, and our distinctives are made up of four priorities. Being friends, enjoying God together, building churches empowered by word and spirit, advancing the kingdom, transforming the world, and reaching nations, making disciples. Devoted is just one event, but you can find out more about Christ Central and other training opportunities at ChristCentralChurches.org. For more about Devoted, please visit DevotedEvent.org. Thanks for listening. See you next year. Welcome uh, to this uh, last of Adrian's three uh, seminars that he's been doing in the afternoons. Uh, I've just only been in the one of them, but that was fantastic. And the feedback I've been having has been great. So um, this is the uh, last of... Uh, three, did Jesus really rise from the dead? Just so you know, Adrian's going to uh, speak to us with some very heavy looking books there and recommend those, I'm sure, for about 40 minutes or so. And then there'll be a good 20 minutes of questions. So we should be all done today by half past three. So it'd be great if you can all stay uh, for that. Uh, I'm sure this is going to be really, really helpful uh, to all of us. So let's just welcome Adrian Holloway. Thank you. Great. Oh, well, thank you very much. It is great to uh, be with you. I've so enjoyed being with you guys over the course of this weekend, and I'm really pleased that we get to investigate this fascinating and vital question, did Jesus really rise from the dead? There are well over a billion people currently living who are convinced that Jesus of Nazareth punched a hole through the barrier of death and that all of those who follow him through that barrier by trusting in him go into heaven with Christ. Now, when I was a skeptic, back when I didn't go to church, uh, at that time I didn't know anyone my age who went to church At that time, it was historical evidence that persuaded me that Jesus must have risen from the dead. That is a key reason why I personally decided to turn around and start following Christ. Now, very few people have ever claimed to be God. Most of those who have are suffering mental illness. Few of them have ever won many followers because it's a pretty demanding role. But Jesus of Nazareth said he would vindicate his spectacular claim to be God by rising from the dead. But did Jesus really rise from the dead? Dr. Gary Habermas has made a detailed study of all the books and articles that credentialed scholars have published on the resurrection since 1975. And Habermas is considered to have researched the academic output of scholars scrutinizing the resurrection more exhaustively than anyone else. And he and his colleague, Dr. Michael Lycona, then selected only those facts 
that the vast majority of scholars, including skeptical ones, accept as historical fact. In other words, they ignored other material, including evidence in the New Testament, which was most heavily challenged by skeptical scholars. So they chose to work only with those facts that the overwhelming majority of academics, both Christian and non-Christian, consider to be reliable. And so using this restrained or, or cautious approach, I want to see if we can make a case for the resurrection using only four minimal facts. Facts that are accepted even by those scholars who oppose the resurrection. Minimal fact number one. Jesus was crucified and died as a result. John Dominic Crossan is the co-founder of something called the Jesus Seminar. He has spent most of his academic life seeking to debunk historic Christianity. But even Crossan admits, quote, that Jesus was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be, close quote. James D. Tabor is another high-profile attacker of Christianity. Tabor agrees. He says, we need have no doubt that given Jesus' execution by Roman crucifixion, Jesus was truly dead. Now, more importantly, our ancient non-Christian sources, Tacitus, Josephus, the Jewish Babylonian Talmud, and Lucian of Samosata, all say that Jesus was crucified. And, of course, all four Gospels also report Jesus' death on the cross. And there are lots of other reasons why modern skeptics are sure that Jesus died by crucifixion. For starters, these Roman soldiers were a professional crucifixion team. They were experts at executing people. Besides, if a prisoner escaped death, the responsible soldiers might be put to death themselves. So they had a huge incentive to make absolutely sure that Jesus really was dead before they removed his body from the cross. But could Jesus possibly have survived crucifixion? Maybe Jesus survived crucifixion and then subsequently in the cool air of the tomb, he might have recovered enough strength to roll away the stone and overpower the guards and then appear to his disciples. In my book, Aftershock, I wrote these words. The idea that Jesus never died on the cross asks us to believe that a man could survive a Roman flogging and a crucifixion from the world's most professional execution force and a spear through his heart and then unwrap himself from yards of cloth probably soaked in 34 kilograms of spice, push away a huge stone, fight his way past up to 16 guards and then appear to his disciples as the picture of health, convincing them that one day 
they could have a glorious resurrection body just like his. More importantly, this explanation requires Jesus to become a liar and a hoaxer who contrived the world's most elaborate deception, Christianity. I don't know about you, but I don't think it's surprising that this survival theory has never really got off the ground. It's never really won many supporters. Next, minimal fact. Minimal fact number two. Jesus' tomb was empty. Now, even an atheist historian will tell you that on the third day, the tomb was empty. Three days after Jesus' body was buried, it simply wasn't there anymore. Now, why are atheists willing to admit that the tomb was empty? Answer, because historians agree that if Jesus' dead body had been in the tomb, then the Jews or the Romans definitely would have produced Jesus' dead body as soon as the first Christians started declaring, Jesus is alive. Remember, Jesus of Nazareth had been such a blasphemous threat to the Jews and such a political threat to the Romans that these two groups had conspired together to kill him. The whole point of killing him was to snuff out Jesus and his embryonic movement. The last thing that they wanted was Jesus' disciples persuading people that he'd risen from the dead. If they had had his dead body, then as soon as the first Christians started touring Jerusalem, punching the air, shouting, declaring, Christ is risen, Jesus is alive, then if they had had the dead body of Jesus, the Jews or the Romans would have put it on a cart and pushed his dead body behind the Christians saying, no, no, he's not alive. Jesus isn't alive. Look, Jesus is dead. Look, come and see for yourselves. Jesus was, after all, a celebrity. You see, ladies and gentlemen, strictly speaking, Christianity shouldn't exist. It should have never got off the ground. The so-called resurrection appearances of Jesus, they should have been instantly disproved by both the Jews and the Romans who had the dead body of Jesus in a sealed tomb, which, according to the Gospels, was guarded by soldiers. Neither the Jews nor the Romans ever did produce his body. That's because they themselves could see that the tomb was empty. So the Jews and the Romans would have produced the body if they'd had it. The reason they didn't was because Jesus had gone missing. The best they could do at the time to explain the empty tomb was to make up a story that Jesus' disciples had stolen his body whilst all the guards had fallen asleep, which, if nothing else, shows they definitely didn't have his dead body. Minimal fact number three. Jesus' disciples believed that he rose and that he had appeared to them. Now, hang on. What about these resurrection appearances? Aren't the resurrection appearances really just legends which kind of grew up over time? I mean, after all, wasn't it hundreds of years later that these resurrection stories first got written down? Well, we know that's not the case. 
And we saw yesterday, for those of you who were here, rather than hundreds of years later, our earliest record of the resurrection appearances can be traced back to within 24 months of the resurrection. Now, for those of you who weren't here yesterday, let me read a crucial document. It's contained within what we now call 1 Corinthians and chapter 15, where we hear Paul saying these words, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Now, this document presents several problems for anyone seeking to argue that the resurrection appearances are more legendary than they are historical. First of all, writing just 22 years after the resurrection, this is 55 AD, Paul reminds the Corinthians that they can test whether the resurrection has any basis in fact or not because the majority of the 500 or so witnesses are still living and they're willing to be interviewed. And then for a number of technical reasons to do with the Greek words and Aramaic words in this passage, this passage is thought to contain within it a much earlier creedal statement. It's likely that Paul picked up this list of resurrection appearances shortly after his own conversion in Damascus, or later when he takes a trip to Jerusalem to meet with Peter and James. These two guys are leaders of the early Christian church. This trip is sometime between 35 and 38 AD, and he describes this trip in his letter to the Galatians, chapter 1, verses 18 to 19. Now, here is the key point to grasp in all of this. It turns out that there is a very wide agreement amongst scholars from all kinds of different backgrounds, from all kinds of different persuasions, that this list of resurrection appearances was already well established in the form that it is preserved on the screen here at the time when Paul collected it, sometime around 35 AD. So this list already existed in 35 AD when it was passed on to Paul. It was an established tradition when Paul collected it in 35 AD or thereabouts. Now this shows that the resurrection appearances are as old as Christianity itself. It shows the resurrection appearances are definitely not a much later legendary development. So we've got here a very early report of Jesus' resurrection. Question. What if these resurrection appearances were really hallucinations? I mean, people who hallucinate, maybe they They want to see something so badly that they end up thinking that they are seeing it. I mean, wouldn't you agree that sometimes imaginary things seem real? Maybe the disciples imagined the resurrection. Well, psychologists study hallucinations. Let us just be clear. For this idea to work, 
we will have to say that all 550 or so people who saw the resurrected Jesus on 11 different occasions over a period of six weeks were all hallucinating the same thing. That everyone who said they had conversations with him, all those who said that they touched him, all those who ate meals with him, they were all hallucinating the same thing. Now, here's the problem. Psychologists tell us there's no such thing as a group hallucination. So we don't know of any group hallucinations. Only one person can see a specific hallucination at any one time. Also, there is no reason to think, for example, that I could ever produce or contrive a hallucination in you. Because remember, the whole point of a hallucination is that there's nothing actually there. So if I am having a hallucination, it is all happening in my mind. Nobody else can therefore see exactly what I'm seeing. So let's imagine that two people did hallucinate the risen Jesus at the same moment. For one of those people, the risen Jesus might be eating a piece of fish. But for the other person, the risen Jesus might be flying through the sky. And let's face it, that hallucinations are very rare. They're usually caused by bodily deprivation or by drugs. Are we really being asked to believe that over the course of many weeks, hundreds of people in various different locations from all kinds of different backgrounds all had identical simultaneous hallucinations? Remember, it is our earliest source that says that over 500 people saw the risen Jesus on one occasion. Hallucinations can't be touched, but the resurrected Jesus was tangible. Even so, because there are so few options, I personally had expected to find that the hallucination theory would find more supporters, but hardly anyone has ever argued seriously for it because hallucinations are restricted to individuals. But there is another alternative. Maybe the disciples just lied. And what if Jesus' disciples did steal his body? And then they later began a rumor that Jesus had risen from the dead. So we're talking now about the world's most successful deception. Now let's imagine that the disciples did steal his body. Initially, I find this hard to believe because... These men were strict Jews. They lived to a very high moral standard. Are we really going to say that they went all over the world telling people that Jesus had risen from the dead when all the time they knew that it was a miserable lie? They knew in their hearts Jesus wasn't risen at all. They knew in their hearts they themselves had stolen his body and they had buried it somewhere. I don't know where they buried it, in Peter's back garden, but they knew where the body was because they nicked it themselves and they buried it themselves. Now, the biggest problem with this argument is that the disciples didn't just say, Jesus has risen, they actually died for it. Question, hang on, no, no, no. You obviously don't watch the news. Um, That's not a problem at all. Loads of people die for their religious beliefs. Answer, yes. That's absolutely right. People often die for what they believe to be true. People tend not to die for lies that they know are lies because they made up the lie 
themselves. Yet the disciples were martyred for their belief in the resurrection. You see, these disciples, they were in the unique position of knowing without a doubt whether or not they had hoaxed the resurrection. If they had stolen the body, if they'd somehow hoaxed the resurrection appearances, would they really have allowed themselves to be tortured to death for this lie? You see, the disciples were literally crucified for their belief in the resurrection. I mean, right up until the last minute, they could have escaped death simply by admitting the truth that they had stolen the body and buried it somewhere. If the resurrection was a scam that they'd invented, don't you think at least one of them might have cracked? And they could have said, I mean, think about Andrew, for example. How, as you may know, Andrew was crucified in a star shape. Uh, so he's, he was more like this with ropes. I mean, he, Andrew, for example, he could have said, oh, for goodness sake, oh, blow it, cut me down. <laughs> it's just a lie that we made up. He's not really risen. That's all any of them had to say because they were being killed for their claim that Jesus was alive. But none of them ever said, oh, come on, let me get on with the rest of my life. It's just a lie that we made up. We just got excited and we wanted to carry it on a bit longer. But none of them ever said that. The reason none of them ever said that was because they knew that Jesus had risen. But anyway, the fact is that our third minimal fact, which is accepted even by skeptics, even by opponents of Christianity, is that the disciples were not deliberately lying. They genuinely believed that Jesus rose and that he had appeared to them. Our fourth and final minimal fact is the conversion of the anti-Christian persecutor of the church, Saul of Tarsus. Now, we have got evidence that this bloke, Saul of Tarsus, really was opposed to Christianity. He says that he was converted because he personally saw the resurrected Jesus and had a conversation with him. And we have six ancient sources. Luke, Clement of Rome, Polycarp, Tertullian, Dionysius, and Origen, who all confirm that this newly converted man, who changed his name to Paul, was subsequently willing to suffer, and he even died for his belief that he really had seen the resurrected Jesus. Okay, you've been very patient. We have looked briefly, haven't we, at four minimal facts. Now, let's imagine that initially... Our goal is that we want to undermine, or at least we want to discredit the resurrection. At this point, we need to come up with something. We need an alternative theory, because any attempt to explain away these four facts cannot leave any of them out. If right now you were in central London, at the central criminal court of the Old Bailey, if you were on a jury, part of a trial, if at this moment the judge has just sent you out to consider with your 11 colleagues your verdict, at this moment you would be looking for a verdict that best fits all the facts. You'd be looking right now for a verdict that doesn't strain or minimize the known facts. You'd be looking for the verdict that best fits the facts that aren't in dispute. Ladies and gentlemen, the reason why 
I became convinced that Jesus must have risen from the dead is because the resurrection explanation of these facts outdistances all the competing hypotheses by such a large margin. The resurrection is the only explanatory theory that can accommodate all the known facts. For example, let's imagine we say, the resurrection never happened. Okay, that's fair enough. Remember, I used to be a skeptic myself. We would still have to come up with something to account for the explosive arrival and growth of Christianity. The Roman historian Tacitus, who was born in 56 AD, tells us there were an immense multitude of Christians living in Rome by 64 AD. These people, he says, were ready to die for Jesus. Why would an immense multitude of people in Rome risk being killed by the Emperor Nero to worship as God a carpenter who had suffered the ultimate humiliation in Roman society of being crucified, a slave's death? Why would an immense multitude of people suddenly start worshipping the scum of the earth? Because that's what a crucified man was in their culture. Now let's say that I choose the hallucination theory to explain this historical fact. Even if the hallucination theory is correct, it doesn't fit all four minimal facts. If I did reject everything that psychologists tell us about hallucinations... Even if I say Christianity is based on a mass hallucination, I would still have to explain the empty tomb. I would still have to explain why the authorities didn't produce the real body of Jesus. Let me put this same thing to you humorously, if I may, just for a second. Let's imagine for a moment that you lived on the moon. And you look down on the Mediterranean world in 33 AD. And as you look down, you have to bet your life on either the message of 12 fishermen who worship a crucified carpenter, their message taking over the entire known world, the entire Roman Empire within 300 years. Or, alternatively, you can bet on the might of the Roman Empire crushing the message of the 12 fishermen within a generation. Okay, who would your money be on? You'd bet on the Romans crushing the message of the 12 fishermen within a generation. And yet today, we name our children Thomas, Peter, Andrew, James, Matthew, and we name our dogs Caesar and Nero. But at the end of the day, and at the end of this talk, somebody might understandably say, look, Adrian, you know, I'm happy to come along, I'm happy to listen to what you've had to say, but I just want you to know that it's not for me. I mean, Jesus may well be risen for you, but he's not risen for me. Okay? Well, in response, I'm sure we can all agree that If we had been doubting Thomas as he reaches out 
towards the supposedly resurrected Jesus, there would have come a point where he either would have touched real flesh or he wouldn't. I'm sure we can all agree that if you and I had been there on that first ever Easter Sunday, if you and I had both walked into the supposedly empty tomb on Easter Sunday, either both of us would have walked in there and we both would have seen, oh yes, there is a, there is a dead body here. There's you and me. There's a very small space. And look, there's a dead human body there. Or we would have both walked into this very small space together and we would have said, oh, there, there's no dead human body in here. There's just you and me. Can you honestly say that as you and I left that tomb, that one of us would have turned to the other and said, well, it may have been empty for you, but it wasn't empty for me. No, because we're talking about a tangible, physical, human body. Folks, history is terribly brutal to relativism. Either the resurrection is true because it really happened or the resurrection isn't true because it didn't happen. It's not just true for Christians. It's either true for everyone or it's not true for anyone. And this brings us lastly to the effect of the resurrection right now. Maybe I can just tell you a story from my past to kind of explain what the significance of this question is, whether Jesus really rose from the dead or not. Um, When I was a student, I I lived in this college for three years where, unfortunately for us, the food wasn't great, but that didn't matter because we knew Alan Blackwood. And Alan Blackwood had a car. And I can tell you that in the late 1980s, to be an undergraduate student with a car was absolutely fantastic. And so every night, we, because we were friends with Alan Blackwood, we would travel in Alan's car to my kind of pizza. And so at about half past 11 every night, we would be sitting there in the back of Alan's car, the five of us, eating pizza. But because we were A students and B blokes, it never occurred to us to empty the used, dirty, greasy pizza boxes out of Alan's car. And so by about week seven of term, the vast number of empty, used, dirty pizza boxes in Alan's car became a problem. Until one memorable night when we went to the, uh, his car and we could not get in to Alan's car because of the vast number of used, greasy, dirty pizza boxes. Now, 13 years later, one of my friends who used to go for a pizza with us phoned me He's now aged 34, and he phones me to say that he's become a Christian, which was a considerable surprise. In fact, he was converted by the evidence for the resurrection, as it happens. But he said to me, I've done to God what we did to Alan's car. And I said, what on earth do you mean? And he said, I so filled my life with stuff that I crowded God out Now, let's imagine that this bin bag represents uh, the bin bag that we use, because, of course, we were deeply committed to pizza, so we did empty out all the used dirty pizza boxes out of Alan's car simply because we wanted to get in the car and go and have some pizza. So let's imagine this bin bag represents all the rubbish from Alan's car. 
Let's imagine this bin bag also represents all the rubbish from my life. Okay? Now, in my case, I'm afraid there is some pretty appalling rubbish in my life. And if heaven exists, if heaven really is, as the Bible says, it's a perfect place. The Bible says about heaven, nothing impure will ever enter it. Then sadly for me, that counts me out. I can't go to heaven when I die because of all this stuff in my past. But if Jesus, as the Bible claims, really never sinned, let's imagine that Jesus' life is represented by this white sheet. Then let's see what's happening at the death and alleged resurrection of Jesus. What happens, according to the Christian gospel, is that Jesus... On the cross, somehow, God, the Bible says, made him, who knew no sin, this is Jesus, to become sin for us, so that in him we could become, whoa, the righteousness of God. So this is what's happening on the cross, according to Christianity. So what happens next is, of course, Jesus, let's imagine that the heaven is up here, this is the perfectly pure place, let's imagine that we're living down here in this life, and let's imagine that this is the barrier of death. What happens next is that Jesus goes through the barrier of death into heaven. So if the resurrection really happened, if this historical event really took place, then of course if you're in Christ, then whatever happened to Jesus happens to you. This is why it's such a big deal. This is why it's not just an academic question. Because at this moment, if you're in Christ, then what happens to Jesus happens to you? That's what happened to Jesus. Well, he physically died, and then he rose from the dead, and he went up into heaven. Well, that's what will happen to you if you're in Christ. And so, everything is at stake when we consider this question. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Jesus said about himself, I am the resurrection and the life. If anyone believes in me, he'll live, even if he dies. So, if Christ is risen, you can live forever with Christ, in Christ, in a place where you'll never be bored, in a place where every single day will be better than the one before. More than a billion people living today are claiming to be experiencing a relationship with Jesus Because Jesus is alive. You can have a relationship with someone who's alive. I know that I've experienced his love. I know I've experienced his power. I know what a difference he's made to me. So, if Christ is risen, massive news. Death isn't the end. If Christ is risen, no matter how tough your circumstances are right now, there is hope. If Christ is risen. If Christ is risen, then there definitely is life after death. If Christ is risen, that is great news for you, and it is great news for me. Okay, let's look at some questions real quick, and then I'll ask for any hands up. Let's just spin through some questions real quick. If so many academics agree on the minimal facts we've mentioned, why don't more, or why don't, frankly, all of them accept the resurrection? I think the answer to this question must include the fact That there is a vast difference, if you're a historian, between, let's say, accepting the fact that Julius Caesar invaded Britain or Julius Caesar was a Roman emperor, which, to be honest, doesn't really have many moral implications for how I live my life. However, if, alternatively, I accept another 
historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead. That might well affect the way that I fill out my income tax return form, the way that I behave in terms of my sexual ethics with my wife or even with my kids, for all I know. It could well affect um, the lifestyle decisions that I make. In fact, if I believe that Jesus really rose from the dead and actually that would vindicate his claim to be God, and if he really is God, then he's going to judge me when I die, which means that there is a judgment day, which means, my goodness, everything changes. So it's not just an academic question. For every historian studying this, there's an immediate moral implication. And that must be, I think, anyway, part of the reason why academics are cautious about accepting the fact that Jesus rose from the dead because it immediately means that he's the judge on judgment day. And there are some massive, scary implications to that. Another question could be, isn't any naturalistic explanation preferable to a supernatural explanation? Yes, absolutely. When you're looking at a difficult historical problem, the last thing you jump to is, oh, obviously a miracle. You've got all kinds of different naturalistic explanations that you want to run through, and God did it is at your bottom of your possible list. Folks, this is the reason why I'm a Christian. Because when I ran this one, I had expected that at least one, and frankly, I only needed one, I needed to find one naturalistic explanation of the facts that is plausible, but actually what I found was that the leap of faith, the jump of faith, the the, the big step into the unknown that was required to believe one of those naturalistic explanations was, was a huge leap compared to the relatively small leap that was required to accept the explanation that Jesus physically rose from the dead. Another question could be, what about David Hume's arguments against miracles? And I touched on this yesterday, so I shall be brief for those of you who were here yesterday. In Western culture, in the Enlightenment, a Scottish philosopher called David Hume became very influential. And one of the things he said is that miracles contradict human experience. Therefore, we should discount miracle claims. If somebody's claiming to have experienced a miracle, you already know that what they're saying isn't true. Why? Because miracles don't happen. How can you be so sure that miracles don't happen? Because miracles contradict human experience. Now, you can't say that anymore. Because people like uh, Dr. Craig S. Keener, and this is uh, part one of his two-volume study, Miracles, he has demonstrated that there are now hundreds of millions of people living today who are claiming to have experienced miracles. So this is not, you know, a few wacky, crazy people. Like, there are six people alive today who say, no, there are hundreds of millions. And he goes around the world interviewing them. And so this isn't just in the majority world. This isn't just south of the equator. These are North American miracle claims. These are European miracle claims. And so it's no longer the case that you could credibly argue that miracles contradict human experience. Another question could be, what about the contradictions in the resurrection accounts? I'm sure you've noticed that although there's not much about the resurrection in Mark, there's lots in Matthew, in Luke, in John. And as we read those accounts, they aren't identical accounts of the resurrection. There are some significant differences, and they're quite striking when you read them next to each other. Well, what about this? Well, let me first of all say that in uh, this book, Mark Lanier, who's a, the, 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 currently the number one U.S. trial lawyer, the most successful trial lawyer in the States, who also is an evangelical Christian, he has 
a, in my opinion, very plausible explanation of how these accounts can be harmonized into one whole. But more importantly, people like Lanier, who are practicing law successfully today, they say that the amount of agreement versus the amount of disagreement between those different resurrection accounts is about right to be credible. Let me explain what he means. If all the resurrection witnesses, if all the eyewitnesses in a trial, if you were on a jury today and all the eyewitnesses came in and they all said exactly the same thing, you would not think, oh, what compelling evidence that they're all telling the same thing. You would actually think this has been cooked. The witnesses have talked to each other. That is precisely the reason why at a trial the witnesses are kept apart until the date of the trial. So Lanier and others, and in fact the first person to publish on this was Simon Greenleaf, who wrote a famous uh, law handbook or textbook at Harvard Law School. He also studied this question, and he also said that the amount of disagreement is about right. What do I mean? I mean that if there were a car crash in a city center, and you had one eyewitness who was a passenger in one of the two cars involved in the crash, if you had a second eyewitness who's somebody working in an office 14 stories up looking out the window on a coffee break, if you had a third eyewitness who was the first paramedic to arrive on the scene, who arrived on the scene probably about 30 seconds after it happened, and then you've got a fourth person who's a pedestrian, they would all get the basic event the same. They'd probably get the same two cars being in collision, but there would be significant differences depending upon their perspective. And these guys, looking at the resurrection, these historians, academics, and even lawyers, are saying it's about right, the difference that you get. You've got different people. One person really did experience just the one angel. But actually, for this other person, there really were two. But the basic events, the women as the witnesses, the resurrection itself, the fact the disciples didn't believe it, these are clear. I'd encourage you, uh, if you're interested in this question, just Google Mark Lanier because he's now putting a lot of his Sunday school class material online and it's very, very good um, material in my opinion. Two more questions and then we'll go for hands up. Were the resurrection appearances really wish fulfillment? We can be really sure that this is not the case because of the exhaustive work of probably the leading British New Testament theologian today, N.T. Wright, who up until fairly recently was Bishop of Durham. <clears throat> N.T. Wright, in this book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, does an amazing, deep, wide-ranging survey of first-century Judaism where he shows that there was no, that there weren't New Testament, that there weren't anybody living in the first century who was a a first century Jew who was expecting the kind of resurrection that was achieved by Jesus of Nazareth. Now, there were Pharisees, as you know, who believed in a resurrection. The kind of resurrection they believed in is not the Jesus of Nazareth kind of resurrection. They believed in a totally different resurrection. Their whole concept of resurrection is the world's going to end. <laughs> There's going to be a day when the world will end, and then everybody who's dead will be resurrected, and then there'll be a judgment day. That's what they meant by resurrection. They didn't believe any more. They didn't expect any more than you would expect. If somebody died today, you would not expect that person to be walking around, having conversations and eating breakfast with people three days later. They didn't expect that any more than you would. And one fact to bear in mind is that when Jesus did rise from the dead, the disciples didn't 
believe it. They didn't say, oh yeah, of course, this is exactly what we were expecting. They said, no, no, I don't believe it at all. So they immediately dismissed what Mary's saying, you know, why is it wrong? Well, it must be wrong because dead people don't rise, so Jesus can't be risen. They said exactly what we would have said if we'd been there. So it's not wish fulfillment. Finally, is there any enemy attestation for the supposed empty tomb? I'll just mention briefly, the guard story, which is that whilst the guards, sorry, the guard story that whilst the guards were asleep, the disciples stole the body, that story is still being used a hundred years later. It must have been widely circulated because we find a Jew called Trifo using it in argument against the Christian apologist Justin Martyr. Now, Justin's dates are 100 to 165 AD. So Justin Martyr is arguing for the resurrection, a great Christian apologist. And Trifo comes back saying, no, no, what really happened was whilst the guards were asleep, the disciples stole the body. The very fact that the Jews circulated this weak story, even a hundred years later, that the disciples stole the body shows they definitely didn't have a better story. They should have had a better story. They should have had the most obvious story. They should have had the dead body of Jesus. So the historical fact that the theft story is still being circulated a hundred years later leads us to think that the tomb must have been empty. Okay, I'm going to pause there. Thank you for listening to me. Let's have some hands up if you've got any questions. Thanks very much. Anyone got a question? Yes, go for it. We've got 15 minutes. We'll definitely finish at half past. So if you want to stay with us, we'll definitely finish at 3.30. Yes, go ahead. Um, I remember reading a little bit where it's, I'll get confused when the guards came and sealed the tomb. I don't know if you've read that bit. There was a gap overnight in Matthew. Or, I don't know. Do you know what I'm talking about? What, when was the, the tomb sealed? When was sealed? it sealed? Yeah, was it the night he was put in? Or Well, it, I, 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 at this minute in time, my understanding of my memory is that the sealing of the tomb wouldn't have been sort of 24 hours later. I would have thought the, t- the sealing of the tomb would have been straight away. It might be somebody can actually look at that even as I'm talking because I've not, when, when you asked the question just then, it didn't ring any bells. So it may be that you're right and I'm mistaken. There's a little note about it being the Sabbath or after... After the Sabbath or something? Okay, well, look, maybe somebody can have a look on their phone or even in the... It'll be in one of those three Gospels. Uh, but the burial is in the earliest source. The burial of Christ is in the 1 Corinthians passage. So um, we've got a very early report of his burial. Um, we can also talk about the guard story. But anyway, whilst people are looking at that, we've got any other questions? And somebody can shed some light on, on that one. Anyone else want to ask something? Is that a couple over here? Hi there. Uh, just uh, I've heard mention of the thought that um, there were common graves used, you know, for criminals. So you might put dozens of people in the same grave; hence, it would have been difficult to say, "Oh, yeah, this is Jesus's body." You see what I mean? Well, I think that's an important question because if there was any documentary or historical reason to think that Jesus was buried in a mass grave. That would be quite different from him being buried in Joseph of Arimathea's grave for several reasons. One, because in Christianity, Jesus fulfills 322 Old Testament prophecies. One of the 322 Old Testament prophecies is the prophecy 
that Jesus would be put in a rich man's grave, which I think is in Isaiah 53. If it's not, it's in Psalm 22. I think it's Isaiah 53. So that in itself would torpedo Christianity because Jesus wouldn't be the Messiah because he only fulfilled 321 of the 322 prophecies. But actually, the claim that Jesus, who died a slave's death, was buried in the tomb of one of the 70, effectively, MPs in their theocracy is a spectacular claim because immediately people would know where that was. I mean, Joseph of Arimathea's grave is not going to be a common grave. It's not just like any old grave or just a hole in the ground. This is a proper grave of somebody who was one of the 70 most important people living in their nation. So I think it's highly unlikely that Christianity could have got off the ground and succeeded if they were loading the whole thing on he was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's grave. Because there would have been, Joseph of Arimathea is, is a leading individual who can be interviewed, who can be talked about, who's still living. So I've not heard that, that he was buried in a mass grave. However, if you're looking to try and escape the empty tomb, that's the sort of thing you'd have to speculate. There's no evidence for it. So we don't have any either early or subsequent evidence to suggest that Jesus was buried in that kind of a grave. But we have got reports about Joseph uh, taking the body. There was another question, I think, over here. Do you want to go ahead? I think it's at the end of Matthew's Gospel when Jesus uh, addresses about, I think it's about 500 of his followers. Uh, and it says, and some doubted. And I've yeah. always wondered why people seeing and hear him, hearing him would doubt that it was really him. Have you any comments on that? Yeah, I think this is a great question. And I think as you asked the question, it reminded me of another question, which is, how could it really be the case that Jesus' own brother, James, never believed in Jesus being the Son of God until after the resurrection. I mean, how can it be that Jesus' own family didn't believe in him? And I think there's some elements to this, which because Christianity's been around for 2,000 years, do seem fairly kind of normal to us. Let's say, for example... The whole idea that Jesus rose from the dead is something that most people in Western Europe and most people in Africa and most people in North America have heard of. But of course, if it actually happened, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, if I had a brother and he was claiming to be the son of God, I would say, you've got to be having a laugh. I mean, you brush your teeth next to me, you're in the bunk bed above me, and you're the son. I mean, give me a break. What do you take me for? So I think probably that's what's going on. I think probably that's what's going on. I think it is inevitable that if you had a genuine resurrection, if God really did a miracle, that you would get some people saying, well, look, this is so contrary to all of my senses and everything that I've ever been told and everything I've ever believed, it cannot be correct. And let's just bear in mind, and I think it's important that we make this point before we wrap up in a few minutes' time, that these first century Jews were strict monotheists. So let's imagine you think right now of a Muslim living in Saudi Arabia. What does that person believe? Fundamental to what they believe is that you cannot have an idol, you can't have a human being being God. That's fundamental to their belief. 
That's exactly what a first century Jew would have believed. So, here's our question. Why did thousands of first century Jews suddenly commit idolatry? To worship a human being was disgusting and repulsive and abhorrent. So here's a question for all of you who are here today. What would it take you to do something tomorrow, okay, on Monday, that right now, on Sunday afternoon, you think that thing, that action, is disgusting, repulsive, and abhorrent, and yet 24 hours' time you're going to do it, all of you? What would it take to swing that far? Well, that's exactly the swing that these first century Jews made. They thought that worshipping a human being as God was disgusting, immoral, appalling, repulsive, and yet Tacitus tells us that this resurrection religion starts in Judea amongst Jews, which is where the Jews were. And so I think that's a, 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 a massive factor that these strictly monotheistic Jews suddenly start worshipping a human being as God. And I think that by far the best explanation of that fact is that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Okay, should we have a couple more questions? Then we'll, we'll call it a day. Anyone else have a question? Yes, at the back. Go for it. Across many of the traditions or Christian traditions in the world, the Turin Shroud has a place either a veneration or superstition. From an evangelical perspective, how might we best respond to that question or that that viewpoint? Okay, the question is about the Turin Shroud. Let me first of all refer you to two recent discussions of the Turin Shroud. First of all, within the last year, there's been a long article in Christianity Magazine, which is edited by Justin Briley, about the Turin Shroud. And more significantly, there's a one and a half hour debate between two Christians who are arguing back and forth about the authenticity of the Turin Shroud on Justin Briley's unbelievable show uh, on Premiere, which you can get the podcast of, which is a massively helpful resource on all of these questions. I personally have never, ever referred to the Turin Shroud ever when seeking to persuade anyone who's not a Christian that Jesus is alive. So I have never gone there. That isn't because I'm totally convinced that the Turin Shroud is medieval, but I think that it is highly likely, in my own view, that the Turin Shroud is not authentic. But I am a little bit surprised that I wouldn't be as far as 100% sure, because there is an argument for its authenticity. Um, Personally, I'm not persuaded by it, but it isn't quite as wacky and crazy as you might think. But I think this is a good example of a naturalistic explanation being more likely than a supernatural explanation. I'm not even sure whether I'm completely convinced that would God really be interested in preserving this relic? Is that really going to help the cause to actually have the actual shroud? Because actually what happens in the Middle Ages is people start worshipping the crown of thorns and the nails and there's, I don't know how many nails were found at the cross of Christ. You know, there were probably only three actual nails, but I think you probably got about 50 in medieval cathedrals. I, I don't know. And they've got bits of, bits of wood and all the rest of it. So have a look at those evangelical Christians who are not crazy, who really do think there's a credible historical case for the shroud. Personally, I'm not convinced by it. But I must admit, when I listened to Justin's show, I started off thinking this is going to be a bit of a joke. And at the end of it, I thought, oh, 
Oh, well, maybe it's not. So that's my view anyway. Anyone want to ask the last question of our three our series of three? In fact, you could ask a question about anything. We could have a question about any subject. It doesn't have to be about the resurrection. Okay. Thank you. Uh, so it is slightly off, but it was just on yeah. my mind. Please um, go for it. Why is it that Jesus uh, constantly refers to himself as the Son of Man and only alludes to himself as the Son of God and allows other people to make that decision? Yeah, really great question. Massively important, of course, when speaking to Muslims because the immediate kind of knee-jerk thing is Christians are supposedly saying that Jesus is the Son of God and yet they're relieved to find that most often Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, which of course is exactly their view, that Jesus is just a man. Here's the interesting thing about this. N.T. Wright, who probably knows more about the New Testament than anybody else living in Britain today, he argues that Jesus going around calling himself the Son of Man in the ears of a first century Jew would have been more likely to make that Jew think, this guy's claiming to be the Son of God, than if Jesus went around saying, hello, I'm the Son of God. Now, that is bizarre to us, but that's because a first century Jew would have immediately thought of the Old Testament book of Daniel, where this figure called the Son of Man is divine. There's there's no doubt that was the understanding of that passage at the time. So Jesus, first of all, isn't just being cryptic, because when we read it, we think, you know, come on, why mess around? Why call yourself the Son of Man? You could just come clean and tell us you're the Son of God. But actually, in the ears of people of the day, they would have thought, oh, oh, this is obviously Daniel, the book of Daniel, this is obviously him claiming to be divine. But more significantly, there are episodes in the New Testament before the cross, sometimes way before the cross, where Jesus reads, for example, from the scroll in Isaiah, he says these scriptures are fulfilled in your hearing, and immediately everybody picks up stones to stone him to death. Jesus faced the real possibility of being stoned to death very early on in his three year teaching career. He knows I've got to stay alive until Easter 33 AD. I've got to keep this thing going. So, towards the end, people are coming looking for healing, and he says, Right, come indoors, come indoors, and he'll heal them secretly and says, Don't tell anyone. Because you've got to keep this thing under wraps because he's got to get to the Passover. There's like all these scriptures about him being the Passover lamb. So he's got to die at Passover. He can't be stoned to death in Nazareth. So Jesus has to be less than totally forthcoming about his divinity because the Jews who heard him make divine claims were bound by Old Testament law to stone him to death. A stoning to death doesn't fit all the messianic scriptures. Like Psalm 22, Jesus is on the cross. And to be honest, if I was getting crucified, I wouldn't be thinking, oh, now, so which verse does this remind me of? But Jesus is quoting from Psalm 22, which talks about, for example, the soldiers at the foot of the cross casting lots for his clothing. So even the details have got to fit for him to be the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So it's vital that he is the Passover lamb that was slain. Like even in our worship this morning, when we're all having the kids worship, we sang 
the lion and the lamb. Even, even that the lamb is crucial. The sacrificial lamb is crucial to Christian theology. And so Jesus has to be the Passover lamb. He can't be, yeah, that guy that said that crazy stuff and got stoned that time. And got stoned to death and kind of like died there. That, that won't work. That's not the lamb of God that was slain. That was just some bloke that said a lot of funny stuff and got stoned to death at the synagogue. So that's one of the reasons. Guys, it has been great being with you. I'm going to stick around. If you've got any more questions, please come and ask. But it's been fantastic being with you. God bless you. And have a great afternoon. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. I was just sat there thinking that every time I had a conversation with someone about any of these subjects, wouldn't it be great to have one of my earpieces in with Adrian Holloway? List, say this, say that, say that. Failing that, can I just recommend uh, the fact that if you go through the Christ Central website, uh, these three seminars, you'll be able to access them there. What a great tool they will be for each of us and also to use in our churches and with other people as well. Also, don't forget in the bookshop, uh, Adrian's book, uh, The Shock of Your Life and his follow-up, The Aftershock, are great resources. They're really, really good uh, and accessible for young people but they're excellent for for the rest of us as well. So can I recommend uh, those as well? But uh, on behalf of all of us, Adrian, and the team here, thank you so much for serving us over the weekend. Adrian's not spoken uh, at any of our main meetings. You may not know, but he's also uh, ministered in in Amplify and in uh, our uh, 8 to 11s work where uh, young people and children have been healed and made responses to Jesus for the first time. So Adrian, thank you for serving us so much this weekend and so well. Let's thank him again. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming. Enjoy the rest of the weekend.